Hey, as you're turning there, let me just share a couple things. I do want to have a uh, more of like a pastoral heart-to-heart with you guys. Um, right now, obviously, our country is very divided. We want to um, acknowledge what took place in Minneapolis this week. I don't know if you saw the videos or saw just the images. I'm sure everyone is aware of what happened and what took place with, with George Floyd. Um, this is one of those moments where I think there's just a plethora of emotions all of us are feeling. I'm very disturbed. I'm very frustrated, angry. Honestly, I think my, the only way I can put it right now is I'm very grieved for the church, for the nation, for what's happening. We just want to take a second just to, as a church, respond to this and pray through and say, Lord, what is it and how is it you want us to respond? Here's what we know. We know that God loves, loves the oppressed. God tells us to be advocates for those who are oppressed. That God is near those who are suffering. He's near the brokenhearted. I genuinely believe that when one part of the body of Christ suffers, we all suffer. And I'd say the body of Christ is suffering. I'd say our nation's suffering, so we all suffer. What George Floyd went through and his family went through is evil, wicked, disgusting. And there's a side of this where I feel like my, everything's being challenged, just everything's being challenged, where I believe the Holy Spirit's asking us as a church to just respond, and we're still praying through what that looks like, that we're called to be more than empathetic, but to be advocates. And so um, my heart just grieves right now. There's a side of this where we're really just praying for the Lord's wisdom and insight and guidance. And let me just say this. Um, we, we so love you. We so love our church. We so love our community. We so love South Florida. And we just go, Jesus, how would you respond this moment? And there's a side of this where we're told to be angry and at the same time, do not sin, to be angry and do not sin. And we see that Jesus had a, a really righteous anger in response to oppression, to abuse, to things that are unjust. And that's our response. We want to be angry and not sin. You know, we want to do something that the Sermon on the Mount talks about, which is incredibly difficult, where it talks about, bless those who curse you, pray for those who use you. And so there's a side of this where we're saying, we don't want hate to beget more hate. We don't want bitterness to grow more bitterness and to respond out of bitterness and to respond out of hate. But we want to respond like Christ would which I believe was a, a sense of righteous anger, a sense of brokenness and grief, and a sense of um, Jesus came to set captives free. And so I do believe more than ever the gospel is the solution. You know, th- the Bible has such a unique heavenly picture of the church. I don't know if we always embody that, but when you look at Revelation 4, This heavenly vision for the church is every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people group coming together and just saying worthy is the lamb. And man, that is our hope. That our church, our small little local expression of the body of Christ, our small lowercase c church and just the global church would reflect that. That we would see every tribe, every nation, every tongue worship Jesus, know Jesus, love Jesus, press into Jesus. I really do believe now more than ever ever, the enemy is trying to divide us individually, as a church, as a nation. Let me just say this. um, A different race is not your enemy or my enemy. The police is not our enemy. Satan is our enemy. I really do believe what one pastor said fits so well. He says, if you don't have a Satan in your theology, if you don't have an enemy, Satan, in your theology, you'll begin to make everyone your enemy. 
And so the enemy here is we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. And there's something, I believe, obviously more than what's being seen. And so we're told to engage in this battle in a spiritual way, in a way that's filled with prayer, in a way that's seeking the Holy Spirit and is leading and guiding. And so that's what we're desiring to do. And so we're going to pray through just our process in this, but we, we just want to create um, a way for us. We want to speak and say, sometimes we just need to listen. Church, listen. Um, yes, sympathize. Yes, be empathetic. And yes, but more than that, even be an advocate. And um, we really, again, want to represent Christ where he, he was so loving and so gracious to those who are oppressed. And as challenging as this thought is, he's also forgiving to the oppressor. And so we're called to forgive. We're called to um, be sympathetic. We're called to pursue justice. Um, we're called right now, I believe, just to pursue the Holy Spirit and call upon him. And so that is our desire. Um, we just want to say we're going to be praying and seeking the Lord in this. And here's what I do believe. Um, we're in Hebrews, I think, for a very intentional reason and time as a church. Because here, here's like the point of Hebrews. The point of Hebrews is fix your eyes on Jesus. The point of Hebrews is everything is a shadow and Jesus is the substance. That Jesus is the true reality. That Jesus truly is what life's all about. And we can get caught up chasing shadows. We can get caught up in just worldly things, worldly incidents, pursuits, all these things that are very real. But now more than ever, we need to press into Jesus who is our substance, who is our peace. And so, listen, here's the point of Hebrews. The point of Hebrews is whatever it is you're walking through, whatever it is you're going through, remember this church is being persecuted, they're going underground. I mean, the church is going through so much. And the whole point was fix your eyes on Jesus. Do not look away from Jesus. Press into the person and work of Jesus, who he is, what he's done for you. That, listen, even what we're going to see here in Hebrews chapter 9 is that we are redeemed and bought at a price. And that was by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are Jesus's. And so here's the thing. We are all um, sons and daughters of Adam. We all have the blood of Adam. And the Bible says this, in, in, in Adam all die but in Christ all shall be made alive. So yes, we're all sons and daughters of Adam, but we're also image bearers of God. And I love this about the Bible is that whether you're, you're Jew or Greek, male or female, it, the Bible just says you're all one in Christ. There's this idea that we're all image bearers of God, but also we're all plagued with sin and, and sin carries itself out in really um, unique ways that we look at what's happening in our country. We look what's happening in our lives personally. My sin might look different than your sin. Your sin might look different than someone else's sin. And yet Jesus came to pay for that. And Jesus came to redeem that. And Jesus came to set us free from that. And so the Bible talks about this. We have the blood of Adam, but more importantly, actually now, as believers in Jesus, we have the blood of Christ in us. Meaning the blood of Jesus is now, is what cleanses us, what sets us free. So I want to look at, we want to look at Hebrews 9. And here's really the main idea of Hebrews 9. Um, this chapter, this section is dealing with guilt that Jesus can do what the law could not do, that the heavenly temple could do what the earthly temple could not do. And that is this, it could purge us, not just of our sin, but remove the guilt that comes with the sin. That the shame and guilt you and I face in life, Jesus died for the fact that yes, you and I are guilty, we're guilty. If you and I stand before a court of law, we're guilty, but not just that. He also removes that, that sense of guilt, that feeling of guilt. 
something the law could not do. So we're going to read Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1 through 15, and uh, then we're just going to pray and look at it more in depth. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. And I just do want to make sure, because I can't really tell. They can hear me. Everyone's good. We're good. Sweet. All right. Hebrews 9, verse 1. It says, Then indeed, even the first covenant, chapter 9, verse 1, the first covenant had ordinances of divine service, and the earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary or the holy place. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all or the holy of holies, it had the golden censer in the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pots that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. We'll talk about this. Uh, And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail, verse 6. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins, committed in ignorance, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, was not yet made known while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot take, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. But Christ... But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption." For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling with the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Jesus, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God and cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Here's what we just read, and we're going to look at this more in depth, but we just read where the, the temple, where the sanctuary fell short, even though it was beautiful, even though it was glorious, even though it was designed the way God told him to design it, it, it fell short in this way, could never truly cleanse our conscience. But Jesus, the last high priest, the great high priest, who went to the eternal temple, the temple in heaven, not only does he forgive us of our sins, thank you, Jesus, and he redeemed us, he's saying, but he's cleansed our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so that you and I can now, in a sense, have that guilt-free. We can be guilt-free. That sense of guilt is removed. So um, we're going to pray. We're going to walk through this, and um, let's just do that right now. Father, we thank you. God, how we need you right now, how I know I, our church, just all of us, we just need you. Our hearts are heavy, our hearts are burdened. And God, it's, it's the sin of others, but really it's, it's our sin. Sin plagues me. Sin just plagues this world. And Jesus, we thank you that you came to purge, 
to cleanse, to remove, to heal. And Jesus, we just ask that you would heal our nation. We ask that you would heal this, this spiritual and cultural moment we're in right now where, this, where Satan just wants to divide, where Satan wants to stir up more division. Jesus, we ask that in you, in you, we'd be more than unified, that we are all sons of God, that you bought us at a price, that we're part of a new family. And so Jesus, I just ask that um, you would accomplish what it is you want to accomplish in our lives, that even specifically today as we talk about dealing with guilt, that, Lord, you would move, and that you would speak. They'd just be here. Help, help our, my thoughts to be present and clear, and help everyone at home listening, that Jesus would be so in tune with your spirit, and just what it is you're doing. In your wonderful name, we ask these things. Amen. You know, we've all, we've all done it. We've all been there. We've all said things we're not proud of. We've all done things we're kind of disgusted by. I think everyone at some point in life has had that weight of just shame and guilt come over you, I think all of us have gotten to the point where you go, how, how could I have done this? I can't believe I said this. Like, I have no idea how, how I could get, it could get this bad. I think all of us have kind of been, just really hit with that weight of guilt where you go, how did it get this bad? How did I let my heart get to this point? See, all of us have just felt this sense of shame and guilt overwhelm us. And man, it's heavy. You know, even if right now you haven't felt that sense of shame or guilt, the Bible talks about this way. Some people don't feel shame and guilt because it actually says in Ephesians that our conscience has been seared with a hot iron, meaning you don't feel anything when you sin anymore. You don't feel guilt and shame when you sin anymore. Why? Because dead people don't feel things. Um, someone who's dead, if you drop a weight on them, they're not going to be like, oh, that really hurt. They're not going to like, you know, pop up. If you drop a weight on someone who's dead, they're dead. They're not going to feel it. And so the idea is when you sin, if there's no sense of shame and guilt, that actually might raise a question, maybe you're still dead in sin. We've all felt, though, to some extent, that sense of guilt and shame, and what do we do with that? Like, how do we respond to that? Um, what, have, what have you done to try to remove that? I think everyone has a process in how they try to deal with guilt and shame. We've all felt that. It can be some big thing. It can be small things. You know, I, I think growing up for me, I had like a very, I was just, I don't know, I had like a high conviction. I used to like tattle on myself in class, like teacher, I talked to so-and-so. I had like a high sense of conviction. Um, I was talking to my wife about this. She shared the story I shared on her podcast recently, but I thought it was funny. When she was in fourth grade, um, they had to take a test. At the end of the test, they shared their test with their partner and you grade each other's test. Someone graded her test. She got the answers wrong. When she got her paper back, she erased her first answers, put the right answers, raised her hand and said, teacher, the person who graded my, class, uh, my test messed up. She gave me these wrong, but I got them right. See? And she showed the teacher. She's like, how could you do that? You know, so she ended up getting that a better grade. She goes home that night. She's like broken, distraught. She's in fourth grade, mind you. Her mom goes, what's going on? Like, what's wrong, Kimber? Why are you so sad? What's up? What's happening? And she told her mom, mom, I lied on my test. I made this other person look bad and so I could get a better grade. And she tells her mom, so her mom says, listen, you're going to go tell the teacher what you did and you're going to apologize to the little girl and you're going to own it. So she did that. She apologized to the teacher. She apologized to the little girl. And she's like, I felt so much better. I don't care if she was given a zero. She's like, I don't even care that I got a zero. I feel so much better. Of course, I had to use her, her analogy of sin, not, not mine. Um, but I just, it's funny to me because there is that where you, we've all felt that, like, I can't believe I would do this. Now, here's the thing. Um, sometimes when you hear someone confess sin publicly, it's almost refreshing. You know, when someone actually says, hey, you know what, I've been prideful, I've been arrogant, or hey, you know what, I've taken this too far. When you hear someone own things, there's a side of it where you go, that's really cool. Other times, 
The person can do something so vile, so wicked, so disgusting. Even when they confess it, there's still that sense of shame and guilt. There's not like there's a sense of applause, like, oh, thank you for confessing. There's still that sense of, yeah, I can't believe you did that. You know, there's one author, uh, David Paulison, said this. Some sins, however, do not elicit, elicit sympathetic nods. If you were adulterous and your family found out, they would not be nodding. Shameful sins receive, shame, uh, receive stares, not nods. Even when guilt is confessed, the shame remains. You know, some people, guys get in a men's group and they get together. I think when guys get together and they say, man, I want to confess some sin. I want to confess the lust in my life. Guys go, yeah, man, I, I get it. I get it, dude. And there's almost like, yeah, that nods. He's talking about the sympathetic nods. Yeah, I get it. But when someone comes out and confesses like this big, heavy sin, um, adultery, like he gives an analogy, what we've, we're seeing right now in America, when you see some of those things, there's not like the sympathetic nods. There's still that shame and guilt people walk and carry. And what do you do with that? Right now, if you're walking around with guilt and shame, what do you do with that? I mean, we've, we've all been there. And if you're not, if you don't have guilt and shame, again, has your conscience been seared with a hot iron? Like, is there, maybe you should feel shame and guilt about some sins in your life. See, here's the idea. Um, there is a saying, even biblically, like this is like an old saying that we might say, but it talks about people, you know, you have blood on your hands. Maybe you've heard that separate, like you have blood on your hands, which means um, you're guilty. And you're walking around with this, this stain, this blood-stained hands. If you remember in the story of Macbeth, right, with Lady Macbeth, um, the story or the play goes that Shakespeare wrote, basically she has her husband murder the king of Scotland and, and one night she's out sleepwalking and she has like this vision of her hands just covered in blood and she just cannot scrub the blood off of her hands. And there's that famous phrase where she says, out damned spot, like she's so fierce, she cannot get the blood off of her hands. And this is what guiltiness feels like and looks like where at the end, even if you confess, even if you don't, you still feel the sense of guilt and shame, like your hands are stained with blood. And this is the title today, Bloodstained Hands, Bloodstained Hands. Actually, Paul to the Corinthians uh, in the book of Acts, he's preaching the gospel to them over and over and over again. And Paul says this in uh, Acts chapter 18, verse 6. He finally was done preaching to really these, these Jews in a synagogue in Corinth. And he says, your blood be on your, upon your own heads. I am clean. What he's saying is the blood's off my hands and it's on your head. Uh, he, what he's getting at is, there's a responsibility and wait for me to share the gospel with you. I've shared the gospel with you over and over and over again. The blood is no longer on my hands. It's on your head. And so here's this idea. There's a sense where you, when you have guilt, you have blood-stained hands. And like Macbeth, Lady Macbeth, you might be going, get off my hands. I want this guilt gone. And how is guilt removed? How is your conscience cleaned? This is what Hebrews 9 is dealing with. So please stay with me because we've all been there where you felt that sense of guilt and shame and you're like, I can't move on from here. Or maybe you don't feel it and there's something that's off. You know, Forbes actually, Forbes magazine came out with an article. It's called Six Signs You're Suffering from Guilt and Probably Don't Know It. So in case there's maybe guilt in your life and like you don't know it, here's what he talks about. Uh, six signs you're suffering from guilt and probably don't know it. And I'm just gonna kind of bullet point them to you. Uh, close relationships don't last. Somebody who's plagued with guilt, close relationships always don't last. Maybe they don't feel like they're worthy to have a close relationship. Maybe they feel guilty, so they feel guilty about something, so they push people away. It goes on to say this, you are chronically tired and distracted. 
someone who's guilty and they don't know it, you're chronically uh, tired and distracted. Like the weight of the guilt is on you and you just can't remove it. Uh, He goes on, the article goes on to say, you joke harshly at others' expense, thinking that in tearing them down, you will feel better. If you see someone who's constantly tearing other people down to make themselves look better, it might be, according to this article, that you're dealing with guilt. Uh, It goes on to say, you respond dramatically to other people's criticism of you. If you're the person who can never take good critical feedback, maybe there's some guilt and shame and you're trying to push it off or avoid it. That's what this article says. Uh, Here's another thing. It says, you are paranoid about what everyone's thinking about you because you project the bad things you think about yourself onto them. So those who, this article says, walk around with guilt, you're project, you think other people think badly of you because how you feel about yourself, you're, you're assuming they feel that same way about you. And then lastly, it says, uh, you sabotage your own efforts. You sabotage your own efforts. You feel so guilty. It's almost like I can't succeed. You know, I, it would be wrong for me to succeed because I've done so many bad things or, and maybe there's that sense of guilt. So you sabotage your own efforts. Now, I'm not saying this is always the case. I thought this was interesting. This is the world, man. This isn't even, this is the world saying, hey, if there's guilt in your life um, and you don't even know about it, here's some signs you might have it. H- here's the point today I, wanna, I want you to get with or get, understand with. Um, God and this Christianity constantly trials, tries to deal with our guilt and shame. For those of you who are just plagued by guilt, if you've ever been plagued by guilt and shame, the Bible's there to address that. So here's what I want to do. We're going to break this section up into two parts, and this is what the author's saying. This is his intent. This is the point. Here's the two points today. Listen, the past temple, though elaborate and beautiful, could never cleanse the conscience of sin. That's essentially what verse 1 through 10 says. We'll look at that. And number two, the heavenly temple, where Christ offered his own blood, cleanses the conscience of sin. So let's look at the first one. Number one, the past temple, though it's elaborate and beautiful, he makes that point really clear, it could never cleanse the conscience of sin. Why don't we just read this again so you kind of understand now what the author's trying to say here because he's really going into depth about the temple, what it looks like. All right, Uh, Hebrews chapter nine, verse one, it says this. Then indeed, after the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and earthly sanctuary for a tabernacle was prepared the first part in which was a lampstand, the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary or the holy place. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden sense and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. Verse six, now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself. And for the people's sins committed in ignorance, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. You're like, what am I reading right now? What is this saying? Again, here's the first point. The past tabernacle, though is beautiful and elaborate, detailed, it could never cleanse the conscience of sin. The main point he's trying to get at in this long section describing the tabernacle and specifically the day of Yom Kippur, What he's getting at is in verse 9. So here's verse 9. We'll show you what it says in two translations. In our translation that we're reading from the New King James, it says, cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. The SV 
The ESV rightly says it this way, uh, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Please listen. Okay, don't miss this. He's saying the temple, beautiful, just covered in gold, covered exactly the way God designed it to be. It's just an elaborate, beautiful temple. It could never cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. It might atone for sin temporarily. It might cover sin temporarily. But one, it could, first of all, it could never truly positionally for forever say you're cleansed. That's why they had to constantly offer sacrifices. And it can never truly deal with the shame and guilt or cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. So let's just talk through this because he's saying, and he, if you don't get it, he's comparing the first temple or the tabernacle, the way God designed it. He's comparing that with the heavenly temple. And he's saying one can deal with the consciousness of sin or the conscience of sin and one cannot. And so let's just talk through this, okay? Because since he goes into detail of what the temple is like, we're gonna do that really quick. We're gonna put a little like image up here so you can kind of follow with me. You can go online and Google like images of the tabernacle, images of the temple, what was in the inside the holy place. So we'll put the image up here for you. Here's the idea. You would walk in behind a veil in what we call the, not that, the other one. There we go, the holy place. And you'd walk in into the holy place. And there's three primary things in the holy place. You have the table of showbread, where there's 12 loaves, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, you had the candlestick or the menorah, just that, that light that was constantly going up so they could actually see. There was no sunlight. There was only this man-made light in the first tabernacle. Then you had this, uh, the altar of incense that was just constantly going up, this like perfume, this aroma going up to the Lord. And really that was representing just the prayers of the people constantly going up to God. Uh, if you read in Hebrews 9 verse 4, you might have caught this. You're like, wait, it says that's behind the veil with the Ark of the Covenant. Um, the idea is the incense would go into the holiest place or to the Holy of Holies. And that's the place where God and glory met with man. The incense would go behind that veil and rise to God is the idea. So let me just kind of clarify, if you see this image, because you're like, what is the tabernacle? We kind of walked through this earlier in Hebrews 4. We talked about this a little bit, but we see that all of these things, we'll talk about this in a little bit, speak of Christ. But notice how serious this was. Um, only the priest could enter into the holy place. Only the high priest could enter in behind that second veil into what we call the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is. Now, by the way, we had the other picture. Um, the Ark of the Covenant, you've probably seen images. I had to pull one from Indiana Jones because I just love this movie and some of you genera younger generations like, what's Indiana Jones? How dare you? So good. Uh, but the Ark of the Covenant, where Aaron's rod, his budded rod was, a bowl full of manna, the Ten Commandments, the cherubim, those two angels, their wings pointing at each other, we call that the mercy seat. The mercy seat is where the high priest, once a year on Yom Kippur, which is what he talks about now in verse six through eight, the high priest would take blood from a sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, atoning for the sins. So meaning God's mercy was given to the people because of a sacrifice. Blood was shed, mercy was given. Blood was shed, mercy was given. It's the mercy seat. So God showed mercy to the people where you could say his presence dwelt. And so here's the point of this. This is what the author's trying to say. Because in case you're reading this like me and you get lost, your brain kind of goes somewhere else. Here he's saying, listen, the, the temple, the tabernacle, the temple, beautiful, elaborate, filled with gold. The veil, many colors, bright, beautiful. The menorah, beautiful, gold. I mean, it was just, but all of these things created barriers and separation. The whole point was, um, not everyone could go behind the veil 
only one person one day a year could go behind the second veil into the Holy of Holies, the whole point of the temple and tabernacle, listen, please listen, was to create separation between God and people. Sin separates us from God. The point that you, you and I learn from the Old Testament that we learned from the temple was God took sin very serious. Let's understand this before we talk about dealing with guilt. God takes sin incredibly serious. God is just. I know that um, we all want the grace of God for ourselves, but we all want justice when it comes to someone else. Um, thankfully, thankfully the Lord shows grace to us all, but he's also just. And you go, how can God be just? And can, how can he be gracious? And this is where the idea of sacrifice comes in. God takes sin so serious. He goes, I, ca I cannot just look at sin and wink at it and be like, wink, boys will be boys. He can't do that. All right, God takes sin so serious. He goes, I must punish sin. Blood must be shed. Blood must be shed. Sin is very serious with God. There is separation. The whole idea of the temple was you look at this thing and you go, this is so distant from me. I could never enter and only one person could enter in. And even if he wasn't clean or worthy, the high priest on Yom Kippur, by the way, would take three different baths. I mean, he had to constantly kind of show outward cleanliness to really symbolize how he's also spiritually clean, which wasn't always the case. But there had to be a sense of, I want to be present. I want to be clean. So this temple was saying, there's separation. You are unclean. Make yourself clean before you come before God. So you had to make yourself clean through washings, through ceremonies. You had to make yourself clean through sacrifice and blood being shed. And do not, this is the idea. We don't really get, again, we're not Jewish. We didn't grow up with the temple. We didn't have this mindset, but this is why I'm, I'm teaching and explaining it right now, which is God is trying to show sin is incredibly serious. There's a separation, a separation between us and God. How do we deal with separation? Back then, they had different ceremonies and cleanliness laws. I mean, even if you were a person who wanted to go to the temple and offer sacrifice for your sins, I mean, you had to be, there couldn't, the Bible talks about just weird things, like you obviously couldn't be sick, there couldn't be pus, there couldn't be feces on your clothing, there couldn't be anything. Like, you had to be, you had to come to God really in a clean manner. And all of that was to say, God's like, not saying it's about physical, but I want spiritual cleanliness. And so there's all this preparation and time going into it. And guys, how exhausting does this sound? How religious does it sound? Wait, like I have to do this all the time, always. I have to clean myself up. I have to offer sacrifice. And all of this was pointing to one day how God would cleanse us, how God would become the sacrifice, how the sin that separated us, we could never bridge the gap. God would have to bridge that gap. And God is saying, I take sin so serious. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to address it. See, this is what we're trying to look at. So verse 9 it's kind of the key of all of this. Verse nine again in the ESV says that all this cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So the whole, the whole point of this section is saying, look at the temple, look how beautiful it is, look how elaborate it is, but it could never truly cleanse the, the conscience of the worshiper. It could never truly cleanse you in that way. And so blood, listen, blood reveals guilt. And I really hope this is heard. Blood was offered a sacrifice. Blood, think about blood. There's this, and we'll talk about the good side of blood and the bad side of blood. Um, let's first talk about the bad side of blood, and then we'll talk about number two, the good side of blood. So the bad side of blood. If you saw blood coming out of someone's mouth, nose, ears, there's usually something really wrong going on. And blood was a lot of signs of death is coming. Blood was a sign of there's guilt. Again, that saying of blood on your hands, or Paul saying blood on your heads, he's saying you're guilty, you're guilty. You have blood-stained hands. Actually, God says this to us in Isaiah 59, that you and I 
have blood-stained hands. Listen to this, Isaiah 59, verse 2 and 3. It says, your iniquities have separated you from God, from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Listen, for your hands are defiled with blood. Your hands are defiled with blood. You have blood-stained hands. There is guilt. You and I are guilty. What the law shows us, what the temple shows us, what the sacrificial system shows us, what the priesthood shows us is you and I are guilty. That there's separation between us and God. And that we could never fix that. We can never bridge that gap. There's these veils. Only one man could help fix that one day a year, but it's every single year over and over and over again. And this was an exhausting thing. And it could never truly cleanse our conscience. It could never truly cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the Lord. It could never do that. But it was all pointing to something else. And so here's what I do want us to see, because this is so important before we get to number two. God takes sin so serious, so serious that an innocent animal had to die on your behalf, on my behalf, so that you and I could live. There's always shedding of blood. There's always sacrifices. There's always innocence dying for someone else to be saved. And then God's saying, but listen, this is fulfilled not in this temple, but fulfilled in the heavenly temple where Christ offered his own blood. And so I want to get to number two, and this is really the main, the main focus and point. We see this, number two, the heavenly temple where, cross, where Christ offered his own blood cleanses the conscience of sin. So let's read down verse 11. It says, but Christ, and I love that. Whenever you see that in the scriptures, it's like, stop. Whenever you see, but God, but Jesus, but Christ, like he's basically saying, look at this sad picture. We could never be cleansed before God, but God. I always love that when you see but God. It's always dealing with some issue in my life, but God intervenes. But Christ, verse 11, came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater, listen, the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more? How much more? Say at home with me, how much more? How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Again, number two, the heavenly temple where Christ offered his own blood cleanses the conscience of sin. So here's, stay with me. The temple, the first temple, the first tabernacle, the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Everything God established under Moses and under the law, when you read Exodus and Leviticus and you start, your brain starts going, this is difficult. I think every year people start reading through the Bible and they get to Leviticus and they give up and then they start all over again. They get to Leviticus and they give up. We gotta stop, we gotta break that. But here's the idea. When you get to Exodus and Leviticus, understand this, it was speaking of Jesus. All the sacrifices, the wave offering, the sin offering, the burn offering speak of Jesus. When you enter into the holy place, now listen, when you enter in the holy place and you see the table of showbread, we're reminded of what Jesus said, I am the bread of life. We're reminded of how Jesus says, you must eat of me and you will live. We're reminded that Jesus is the bread of life. When you look at the, the menorah, the candlestick, you see the lights on it. You see the lights, Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world. If you're in me, you have no darkness. 
Remind of Jesus being the light. When you see that table or the altar of incense going up, it's Jesus. The, the incense would be prayers going to God. Jesus is that great mediator who always lives to make intercession for us. He's the one always making intercession for us. When you enter behind the veil, first of all, the veil, we know this, we've talked about this. We'll look at this again in Hebrews 10. The veil represents Jesus' flesh because the veil was torn apart from top to bottom. It says in Matthew 27. So just like the veil was torn apart, Jesus' flesh was torn apart so you and I might have access to God because behind the veil was the presence of God was the Ark of the Covenant. That's where God's glory dwelt. And you think of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. These two angels on both ends saying you have access to God. It reminds us of Jesus' tomb. On the day of resurrection, there's two angels sitting, one at the head and one at the foot. And the mercy seat reminds us of the fact that there was two angels at the tomb of Jesus. There's a new mercy seat. There's a new way we have access to God. Do we get this? Everything in the temple was pointing to Jesus. Everything. Everything in the holy place and the holiest of holies, all of this was to speak and point to Jesus saying, hey, the blood of bulls and goats, it could never truly satisfy the righteous wrath of God. Yes, blood needs to be shed, but we have more excellent way, and that is through the blood of Jesus. And then think about this. On Yom Kippur, uh, which just means day atonement, atonement day, on the day of atonement, the high priest would have to, you know, wear his best garments, wear put on this is brilliant, like the ephod with the different 12 gems, and he had to wash himself, cleanse himself, put water all over himself. The people were constantly looking for him to come out of the temple to cheer and celebrate. Yes, he came out of the temple. That means the sacrifice for sin was accepted, and people were cheering and celebrating. Listen, the, the cross, the cross was the true day of atonement, but it looked a lot different. It's not Jesus clothed in these wealthy garments. It's him being stripped naked. It's not him being bathed in water, but being bathed in spit. See, the day of atonement looked a lot different when it came to the cross, where Jesus said, you have all these beautiful religious rituals. Mine's not going to look this way, but it's going to truly lead to true cleansing. I love how Tim Keller puts it. He puts it this way. He says, he wasn't clothed in beautiful garments and linen. He was stripped naked. He wasn't bathed except in human spit. What was he doing on the cross? He was getting our filth so that we could get his righteousness. He was securing for us an eternal redemption. See, why did it deal with so much cleanliness laws and Jesus at the cross is being made so unclean so that you and I could be made clean? Jesus took on the filth, the disgust. He took on all of that so you and I could be made clean. You see, it says he came, he offered his blood in the holiest, in the true temple, the temple of the living God, to say the sins are atoned for. And now, finally, not am I only declared not guilty, but finally the guilt and shame you and I feel can also be dealt with. This is what, I, I, I don't know if we understand, when we say the gospel's good news, we kind of maybe take it to a certain extent, like, yes, you're free, you're forgiven, that is good news. But you know that you and I can also be freed from the guilt and shame that comes with that? If you've ever walked around with guilt and shame, and you feel like Lady Macbeth, and you're like, out, damn spot, like you feel like the shame and guilt can't get off you, um, Jesus can actually cleanse and purify that. This is so unique. This is so different. See, we all have blood-stained hands, Isaiah 59.2. We all have guilt. It's not just that these people are bad, this group is bad, I'm bad. The problem's with them, the problem's with me. You see, I think we need to learn this now more than ever. The problem's not out there, it's within me. Sin dwells within my heart. I have bloodstained hands. And here, here's the idea. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The idea is, though I have bloodstained hands, there would be one to come who would also get bloodstained hands. There is one whose hands were nailed and pierced to a cross, so my hands that are truly bloodstained could become free. 
So my hands that I could never get that off myself, I could never remove the guilt and shame myself, well, his hands became stained with blood so my hands wouldn't have to be, so your hands wouldn't have to be. See, this is the gospel. The gospels were all guilty. But the gospel is also that Jesus took that guilt. The gospel is, look at the temple. Sin is serious. There's separation. There's veils, man. There's holy relics. I mean, there is separation between us and God. And the gospel is Jesus came to bridge that separation, to bridge that gap. That Jesus came to not just, just say you're free and forgiven, but to take the sin and shame that comes with that. To say my hands will be filled with blood and blood stain, so your hands that are blood stained could be made free. That is the gospel. This is what Jesus offers us. This is what Jesus does for us. This is such good news. Now, here's why I want to share all this, because do we always live in this? So here's what I want to get at. Do you live with this sense of you're forgiven? Do you live with the sense that the shame and guilt you carry with you, you don't need to carry with you? Is there, is there a way you try to deal with that? I, I've been around a lot of Christians who try to deal with guilt and shame through different ways, right? How? They might just, I'm going to eat, I'm going to overeat, I'm going to drink, I'm going to sleep around. I have guilt, I have shame, I feel this disgust about myself. How do we deal with guilt and shame? Some people get really religious, like really religious. They think they can do things to please God, so they try to remove the blood themselves. They can never remove the blood themselves. Other people, they try to overindulge, go to this other extreme. I'll do whatever I want to kind of fill that gap of guilt and shame, and that will never fill that gap. Yet we look to Jesus, who did receive bloodstained hands, so mine wouldn't have to be. Let me say it this way. So I have two questions I want to ask everyone. I want you to think through this with me. Um, what does free from guilt mean, and what does it not mean? So if, I, if we say the gospel says you are free from guilt, man, that verse 14 actually says it the best. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Hear that phrase again. Cleanse your conscience to serve the living God to cleanse my conscience from all these dead works to serve the true and living God. Remember what verse 9 said? That the, the temple, the sanctuary, could never truly cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. And now he's saying, but the blood of Jesus cleanses the conscience of the worshiper. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be free from guilt? What does it not mean? Because too often you see Christians living with extreme guilt, and they're not walking in freedom. Or I see the opposite, where they're walking around with almost arrogance, and they don't realize their own sin. So let's talk about this. What does it mean? What does it not mean? Um, here's what, let's talk about what it does not mean. It does not mean continuing in self-destructive behaviors. Okay, so what does it not mean to be freed from guilt? It does not mean you continue in self-destructive behaviors. You don't go, I'm already free. I'm already forgiven. Let me continue to sin that grace may abound. God forbid. Paul in Romans 6 really deals with that. He says, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How can we who are dead to sin live any longer in it? So you're going, what does it not mean? It means this, um, don't continue in self-destructive behaviors. It's painful to watch Christians go back to worldly things over and over again. Like you see them get saved out of something and they're like, maybe they will find satisfaction in that. And they're, so they're going back in the party scene, back in the drinking scene, back into you know, whatever <laughs> the scene they want to go back to. And they're trying to explore these things and they never find that. Like, they go, well, I'm free, man, I'm forgiven. It's like, but don't use that freedom. Don't let it become a vice. Don't let it now bring you back to things that Jesus has set you free from. Number two, what does it not mean? It does not mean not repenting. I know that's a weird way to say it. It does not mean not repenting. So yes, you're free. Yes, Jesus purged your sins. The blood of Jesus covers us, atones for our sins, cleanses the conscience, but there's still a need to repent. There's still ongoing repentance. Hey, I'm married. 
Um, but listen, I still need to repent, right? I, my wife will love me no matter what, but I still go to her and say, hey, I was off. I'm sorry I got so upset. I'm sorry I got so mad. Would you forgive me? I still constantly to do that. And it's not so that I can stay married, but so I can have a healthy marriage, right? The idea is you don't say, well, I confessed my sin a long time ago with God. I'm good now. Like I, I did that. No, First John 1, 9 says, confess your sins. If you confess your sins in this ongoing sense, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Did he cleanse you from all righteousness? Absolutely. Why do we still confess to have that deep and intimate relationship with him? Because sin, again, gets in the way between us and God. And so we constantly confess to renew intimacy, to have that with him. So it does not mean not repenting. Christians, we still need to repent. I don't just say I repented like 50 years ago. No, no, you still need to repent. There's still that daily course correction of God, I'm going astray. If you've been going astray in your life, let me say this, you still need to repent. Does he cleanse you, forgive you? Absolutely. Would your spouse still forgive you and love you? Absolutely, but you still seek reconciliation. You still confess. You still move forward together. Um, What does it not mean? It does not mean you can be a lazy Christian. There's something so bizarre about this because, man, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And I think those who really believe that and get that, it motivates you. It drives the love of Christ compels you, man. And there are those who hear about the love of Christ. They didn't really experience the love of Christ. And they hear about it and go, oh my gosh, the love of Christ is so good. I'll just do whatever I want. You know, there is this St. Augustine quote of love God and do whatever you want. And I really do love that idea. But if, the idea is if you truly love God, you'll do what he wants. If you truly love God, your, your ways are going to be submitted to his ways. And so it does not mean, man, you, God has cleansed you from your conscience and you just go, well, let me just take advantage and abuse that. It does not mean you become lazy in that. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be free from guilt? Listen, it means don't be paralyzed by your past. So let's talk about the good news of this, man. You are cleansed. Your conscience, the Bible says, is cleansed from sin. So here's what that means. Don't be paralyzed by your past. Satan is going to try to paralyze you by things you've done and said and ways you've acted in, and it'll paralyze you from moving forward. I love how one author put it, you break the power of the past by living for the future. Man, you and I break the power of the past by living for, that this is the day the Lord has made, I will rejoice and be glad in it. That today is the day of salvation. That you know what Jesus has forgiven me of yesterday, today, future sins, and so that means I'm not going to be paralyzed by my past. Could people pull up things from my past, from your past? Absolutely. In this world of social media, do people constantly try to say, well, look at this guy's past. Look at this person's past. But here's the thing, the blood of Jesus cleanses them. Not just from the guilt, like they are positionally guilty. Not just are you now innocent, but man, the guilt and shame that comes with that. He cleanses you from that. So don't be paralyzed by your past. That was placed on Jesus. Jesus paid for that sin. Why make him pay for it again? You can't. Why let someone else try to make you pay for it again? They can't. He already paid for it. Don't be paralyzed by your past. Amen. Number two is this. Um, it means what Satan tells you has no weight to it. The lies that Satan tries to feed you and feed me about myself, about others, has no weight to it. W- what it means is that you are free that, that your conscience is cleansed. When you begin to believe those lies or Satan whispers those lies about who you are, I know the true you. I know you're, true, I know you're faking it. When he tries to whisper those lies, you remind yourself of your new identity in Christ. You say, but this is what Jesus says about me. But I am a new creation in Christ. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. You're reminding yourself, what does it mean to be uh, cleansed in your conscience? That what Satan says to you has no more weight that he does not define you, 
the labels others have given you, the labels you've given yourself, they do not define you. Your identity now is hidden in Christ and you have a new identity. And so it doesn't matter what someone else might say about you. It doesn't matter what you might even say about yourself. It's so interesting to me when you, when you talk to people, you know what they say this, and you're like, if I tell someone, listen, God loves you, God has forgiven you. And they say, well, I can't forgive myself. Do you know what that, when someone says, I can't forgive, my, forgive myself, so you're saying, so your opinion matters more than God's opinion? When someone says, I could never forgive myself for what I've done, well, if God has forgiven you, you're forgiven. Your opinion does not have more weight than God's opinion. If God says you're free and forgiven, then you're free and forgiven. If God says your life is now hidden in Christ with him, your life is hidden in Christ with him. So the idea is don't try to say, well, I can never forgive myself. doesn't matter. At the end of the day, you don't need to forgive yourself. You need God to forgive you, man. You need the forgiveness of God in your life. And if God has forgiven you, you're forgiven. Don't try to say, I can never forgive myself. Don't you dare for a second think your opinion matters more than God's because we know what God says about you if you're in Christ. And so listen, it means um, what Satan tells you has no weight to it. It also means walking according to the spirit and the teachings of Jesus. The idea of being free from guilt the idea that Jesus cleansed my conscience, it means now I'm gonna walk according to the spirit and according to the teachings of Jesus. You know, we know this verse, I feel like it's always quoted and I, I might've mentioned it last week. People quote the first half and forget the second half, but it's Romans 8.1. And in Romans 8.1, it says, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, right? We kind of hear that first part. The second part is, but to those who walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's like, amen, that is good news, no condemnation to those who walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. Walk according to the spirit. Walk according to the teachings of Jesus. Free from guilt, free from sin, means you're pressing into the person of Jesus, the work of the spirit, the teachings of Jesus. You're saying, he says it, I believe it, I'm gonna live it out, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna apply it. And so this is the idea that you're saying, uh, not only is there no condemnation, but it's because you're walking according to the spirit. If you're still walking according to the flesh, trust me, you will feel that sense of condemnation. You know, one of my favorite verses is John 3, 17. John 3, 17. Because we quote John 3, 16. Like we know John 3, 16, but John 3, 17 says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You see, God did not send Jesus to condemn us. Why? We were already condemned. When someone's like, man, don't condemn me, dude. It's like, I could never do that. You're already condemned. God did not send Jesus to condemn the world. You were already condemned, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't come to condemn what was already condemned. He came to forgive and free and make new what was condemned. That if you believe in him, you'll have everlasting life. And so listen, it means walk according to the spirit and to the teachings of Jesus. If you've been freed, forgiven, if you really truly know the Holy Spirit has done that work in your life, walk according to the teachings of Jesus. It's not enough to believe the teachings of Jesus in your mind, like I agree with them, but to live them, to follow them, to submit under them. He who does the will of the Father, that is the idea. And lastly, here's what it means to be free from guilt. It means you're all in. It means you're all in. It's like there's no part of me that God does not have. God, you have all of me. Does God have every single part of you? Listen, does God have every single part of my mind, my heart, my emotions, my will? Does God have every part of you? So my personal beliefs on certain things, does God have those things? Have you submitted your will, your topics, your agendas, your pet sins? Have you submitted that to God's will? Have you said, God, you get all of me? My political views, it's yours. I'm gonna give up what, I'm gonna give up what college taught me for what your word says. I'm gonna give up what this professor says for what you say. 
See, the idea is this. Um, when you've truly experienced the love and grace of God, your heart is regenerated, made new. When God is renewing your mind, that's an ongoing thing. There's this idea of I'm all in, God. There's not one area that I'm going to keep to myself. I'm going to submit all to you and say, God, what does your word say? What do you say about this? I'm going to press into this. I want to know your ways, not my ways. I don't care what, what's happening in the, the social media world. I don't care what this argument is or this argument is. I'm going to press into your word, God. What does your word say? And you're all in. You're all in. Be all in. If you've experienced, if you've tasted and seen the Lord is good, be all in. You're all in. So here, let me just summarize it with a story. What does it mean to be cleansed from guilt? What does it mean that God has removed or purged that sin, that guilt, that shame from our conscience? What does that mean? You know, there's a story in John 8 where there's a woman who is ca- caught in the act of adultery. And they bring this woman, not the man for some reason, right? This guy's pretty screwed up. They bring the woman and say, Jesus, she was caught in the act of adultery. You know what the law says? We are to stone her. What do you say? Jesus doesn't respond. I love this story. He starts to write it in the sand. We really don't know what he said. The, the only thing that really does make sense is that the accusers that brought this woman, he started writing down, I believe, their sins, their junk. I believe it's like, oh, what's your name again? Paul, Paul, this is what you did. And he starts writing in the sand because it says one by one, the accusers leave this woman. Jesus is right in the sand, and the accusers who are there to condemn her, there to stone her, they leave one by one. And then Jesus looks at this woman, and he says this to her. Jesus said to her in John 8, 11, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You know, if Jesus just had this beautiful moment where people are leaving and said, neither do I condemn you, period, and that's it, it wouldn't be complete. Yes, she's forgiven. Yes, God says, I'm not here to condemn you. But notice the last phrase, go and sin no more. Now, if they just left one by one, everyone starts leaving, and Jesus looks at the woman and says, go and sin no more. And he didn't say the first phrase of neither do I condemn you. That's also incomplete. See, the gospel is this unique thing of you're not condemned. Jesus paid for that. At the same time, go and sin no more. It's not one or the other. Some churches or some people or individuals will say, you're not condemned, period. True. Don't forget, go and sin no more. Some will just be like, go and sin no more. And they forget to say, you're not condemned. And I think that's what the gospel encompasses both. You are not condemned, go and sin no more. Hey, Jesus has paid for your sin, go and sin no more. Hey, Jesus has cleansed your conscience, cleansed my conscience from my sin, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. There's a side of this now, go out with that pure conscience and say, Jesus, I want every moment, every decision, every act, I submit what I want for what you want. And listen, that's why the, the following Jesus says, man, the, the road to following me is, is narrow, it's difficult, there are few who find it. Because it is difficult to follow. It's difficult to submit your ways to Jesus' ways, but it's so worth it. But that narrow difficult leads to life. And that is the idea of church. Hey, you're not condemned, go into no more. It will be difficult, it'll be hard. Guess what, you're not condemned. Don't abuse that. Don't continue to sin that grace may abound. Don't abuse that. Go and sin no more. But also, don't just hear go and sin no more. Hear the part that you're not condemned. Hear the part that Jesus came to set you free and forgive you. Listen, this is Hebrews 9, saying the temple could never do what Jesus did. The blood of bulls and goats could never do what Jesus' blood can do. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. My hands are stained with blood, according to Isaiah 59. Your hands, we are all guilty for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And my hands and your hands are stained with blood, but Jesus' hands are also, or were also, stained with blood, so that my hands could be made free. And so, neither does he condemn you, go and sin no more. 
that is what we want to continue in and walk in according to the Spirit. Amen? Church, this is one of those things where I hope now you can discuss in groups, in community, live out, carry out, hold people accountable. There's too many Christians who do their own thing and not have anyone speak into them. Guys, if you feel cut off, ask people to say, hey, would you speak into my life? If you're in a place right now where you feel like you're just kind of doing your own thing and you're following Jesus, invite other Christians in and say, hey, listen, would you lovingly come alongside me and help me and correct me and say the hard thing? Do that. Invite people into that. Give place for them to speak into you. Don't assume, well, I've been around enough. I know enough. Listen, we need the Holy Spirit. We need the church. We need each other. We, we, need, we need this. So I want to encourage you guys. We're going to have some questions in a second, some questions we're going to put up. We're going to walk through those. But before I do that, I just want to pray with you. I have a couple of quick announcements, and then we're going to put up the questions. And um, church, I also want to encourage you guys, as we do hit groups this week, please let there be a sensitivity in what we discuss, what's happening in our nation. Let there be a sense of love. Let there be a sense of listening. Let there be a sense of being teachable, being open. Um, let there be a sense of uh, humility and grace. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who use you. Um, that Jesus cares deeply for the, those who've been oppressed and those who've experienced injustice. And Jesus at the same time died for the oppressor. And there are those two extremes I'm, I, we all wrestle with. I need grace. And so I should be praying for grace on others. I should be a people of grace. And all at the same time, we do seek justice while we're on earth in this life. And I would say in your conversations, in your group, guys, do it from this gospel perspective, not from what you've heard in media, not from what you've heard in social media or certain people you like or follow. I'd say let this book, let Jesus' word guide your conversations, guide your time. You be open, you be teachable, and you realize this, I'm the sinner, my hands are stained with blood. The problem's not out there, it's within me, and yet Jesus came and died for my sin and for the sin of the whole world. Can we pray? And then we'll have a couple quick announcements. Father, we thank you so much for this time. God, how we need you. Lord, how I thank you for purging, forgiving, cleansing me of my sin, Jesus, that I want to boast in your son and the cross and what he's done. And uh, Lord, the only reason I can even stand up here is because of the cross, is because of what you've done. And God, everyone listening, every group happening, God, I just pray for peace, for unity within the body of Christ, for love, God, for there to be this, this righteous anger that we would be angry and not sin. And also, Lord, that there would be this extreme push within us to bless those who curse us. That Jesus, it's easy. Anyone can love those who love them. But you, we as followers of you, Jesus, are called to love our enemies and to love those who seek our destruction and to love our enemies. So God, I ask that you do that within our church. Jesus, we need you, we love you, we look to you in your name, amen.